Welcome to the RCAP USA Roundup, a podcast where we have real conversations affecting both cattle producers and beef consumers. We're your hosts, Jaden Moreland and Karina Jones. With that, let's get to today's episode. This episode is sponsored by York Ag. York Ag is a dynamic supplier of holistic feed ingredient solutions for the animal feed and production industries. Their flagship proprietary products, York Calcium Chips and Bovazyme, are the leading ingredients in a wholesome product portfolio that helps create feed formulations according to your nutritional needs. They're in relentless pursuit of innovative, dependable, and effective ingredient solutions, and their commitment to feed manufacturers, livestock consultants, and animal producers is to anticipate consumer trends while recommending functional products that deliver performance and profitability in an increasingly transparent marketplace. For more information, visit yorkag.com. Thank you for your support of RCAP USA. On this episode, we sit down with Iowa State's Lee Scholes and discuss his work, his research into multi-plant coordination in the beef industry, the processes of that research, and what he'd like to see in cattle market reforms. Okay, well, Lee, welcome to the RCAP USA Roundup, and thank you for taking time to join us today. Um, Why don't we start with just kind of a quick introduction, kind of give us like an elevator pitch and just tell us about yourself. All right, well, thank you for inviting me. Um, So bit of what I do at, at Iowa State University. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Economics, and I serve as the statewide extension specialist on livestock economics and markets. Now, my position's a, a bit unique uh, in the sense that I have a three-way appointment, uh, and it's an integrated appointment where my responsibilities range from extension to research and into teaching. So uh, I co-teach a course on agricultural markets, uh, that course is in the spring, so we're just wrapping that course up now. Uh, and the, the objectives of that course is to help students understand the use of futures, options, and tools in marketing and risk management, know the various sources of agricultural data and the roles that this data play in commodity markets, and understand the forces that, that shape commodity markets and learn about market prices and, and forecasting. Uh, then another part of my my job here at Iowa State is uh, an extension program, which focuses on educating producers, allied industry stakeholders, agencies, government, private agencies, educators, the academic community, and, and all the way to the general public on the areas of livestock and meat market situation and outlook, price analysis, risk management, and then emerging issues are, are really, you can think about as kind of the, the topics of the day or really the hot topics that, that uh, the industry is dealing with. Uh, this program is really delivered through a variety of ways, uh, through the trade and popular press articles, reports and proceedings, uh, decision tools, I, I update a lot of websites with, with data information, and then a lot of uh, meetings that I attend. So these may be producer meetings, uh, stakeholder meetings, uh, podcasts or webcasts like like this. And then I do a lot of direct uh, communication with producers. So producers calling me, asking me questions, asking me for data. And so some of those are, are some of the richest and, and best interactions that I really have because it really helps me understand some of the, the issues and, and challenges producers are having. And then the third component of that is is a research program. So that broadly looks at livestock economics and markets. I do a lot of this work collaboratively 
directly with researchers, uh, both uh, faculty and graduate students here at Iowa State University, and then other uh, collaborators at other universities. And, you know, the uniqueness also of this position is, you know, I'm really the link between the academic community and a lot of times the the, the industry or producer groups because, um, you know, I'm having a lot of those interactions at various meetings uh, when producers are calling me. So that kind of helps feed my research agenda um, and then provide that results and, and um, information back to producers. Great. So you're going straight to the source. I like it. <laughs> Um, so as you said, you're a professor at Iowa State and, you know, we had you on to primarily talk about your research and kind of work you've been working on. Um, but first let's talk about how did you, I mean, what led up to this, of how, what's your background in ag, you know, how did you kind of get to this position and kind of get interested in this research? Sure, I'll, I'll take you way back here. So I, I grew up on a, a really a, a hobby crop and livestock, very diversified farm in central Wisconsin. And, you know, I had probably a lot of the similar experiences that that many listeners had, right? So I, I grew up, uh, you know, helping on the farm, showing cattle at locally and at the state level, and then involved in 4-H and FFA. A lot of the work there was was livestock and meat judging. So that really got my interest um, in agriculture and in livestock. And then when it came time to, to, to go to college, um, I, I went to University of Wisconsin River Falls and, and studied agricultural business. So, you know, a lot of the, the experiences I had growing up uh, as, as it related to, you know, um, the banking sector and, and, and different sectors kind of led me to, you know, think about agricultural business. And really at, at River Falls, I learned all the opportunities that, that were available to the agricultural business uh, field. Um, and then fortunately, just before I was finishing, um, I had a, a professor there that was also a livestock marketing specialist uh, that asked if I was interested in, in doing any research. And, you know, before that, I had thought research, you know, you needed a white coat and a laboratory to do research. Uh, but, you know, the, the research that, that we were interested in there was was understanding uh, prices for, for Holstein cattle in Wisconsin, because that's a pretty large segment um, in Wisconsin, given the size of, of the dairy industry. And so uh, that kind of gave me my first taste of, of research. I was able to participate in the National uh, Conference for Undergraduate Research. So that kind of helped me understand the network available and and all the possibilities that they are for research. And so I, you know, really took that opportunity and, and looked at um, graduate school in, in agricultural economics. And, and Michigan State had always been a, you know, kind of a, a place that that I admired, um, you know, even back to undergraduate years. And so, you know, I applied there and ha had an opportunity to work with a livestock um, economist there that, you know, really helped open my eyes to even more opportunities. Uh, and, you know, we were able there uh, and my primary research at, at Michigan State looked at um, producer preferences and perceptions for animal identification and traceability programs. Um, and so then, you know, that took me to, to Kansas State, uh, where I did a PhD, which really, I think, distilled um, my, my passion for research and extension um, and really helped me get into um, developing my own research ideas and an agenda and, you know, all the, the possibilities of, you know, understanding the challenges um, and, and how that feeds back to research and, and delivering some of those uh, results. You know, broadly, I've always just been really fascinated by how markets work. Uh, you know, economics, it, it, it really allows you to, to show and help understand historical trends, right, because of the data that's available. 
you can interpret today's headlines. And I think that's really valuable, right, is, is to understand, you know, something that's happening now and what and make predictions about how that will play out um, into the future. So specifically, we brought you on today to talk about a study that you were a part of at Iowa State, the multi-plant coordination in the beef packing industry. What was it that, um, you know, you and your collaborators came to, to this topic and set the uh, project in motion? Sure. And, and I'm going to take a bit of a step back to, to set this up, I think, because it'll help uh, our listeners understand, you know, what uh, the context in which, you know, we were looking at this and, and why this is important. So um, the, the term price spreads is is very important. Right. And and uh, and it's important to this study and to this discussion. And so price spreads sometimes are referred to as marketing margins. Uh, but this is the difference between just two prices at, at different segments in the supply chain. Um, and when you think about uh livestock or, or cattle to, to beef in this case, it's the cost of performing marketing functions that require to get those animals uh, from live animals to uh, to the producer, from the producer to the consumer, right? So when we think about the farm to wholesale beef price spread, this includes the costs of slaughtering, processing, transporting, and packaging beef, and the profits of packers. Um, and, and so there's a lot of different, you know, costs it, that are uh categorized into these different price spreads. Um, and it's important to look at these price spreads over long run averages because there can be some really ebbs and flows within particular uh, time periods. Also, it's important to remember that that profits for packers are included in there because uh, we don't do anything for free, right? It's just like a, a feedlot's not gonna operate without a profit, right? That's not long-term sustainable. So that needs to be part of, of that spread. Now, when we think about price spreads, sometimes they're mistakenly uh, referred to as like a gross margin, uh, but these concepts are very different. So when we think about something like a gross margin or a gross packer margin, that's like the box beef price plus maybe some byproduct value and then minus the live cattle price. Now, a lot of times that's uh, you know referred to in a dollars per head standpoint. Um, and over the last several years, you know, people have noted how large that that value can be for for various reasons. Um, now, first, I'd like to highlight that that's a net margin, right? We don't have data on the cost to operate a plant, both the fixed and variable costs. And even if we did, it's going to be really plant by plant specific. And noting net margins is really missing a big part of the picture because just like a, a it would be like telling a feedlot, well, your profitability is just what you're selling that fed cattle for minus what you paid for the feeder cattle. That's missing a lot of those costs, right? And so, you know, it's important to, to make sure we're understanding what price spreads are, are really reflecting. It's reflecting those kind of long run costs of getting that live animal from producers, um, in this case, to a box beef or a value that, that um, packers are, 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 are um, getting. Now, knowing that, as we look at these, these monthly price spreads of the upstream fed cattle price to the downstream box beef price, those have changed notably. So if we look back from January 2010 to August 2015, that average spread uh, was about $34 per hundredweight. Um, and that's according to USDA's Economic Research Service. You can actually go back to 1995 to 2015. And it's about $30 per, per, per um, hundredweight for, for that spread. But then from uh, late, 
late uh, 2015 to the end of 2018, that price spread averaged $58 per head. Uh, then it widened even more in 2019 to $84 per head. In 2022, 2020, it was $122 per hundredweight. Sorry, I think I said uh, per, per head earlier. These are per hundredweight. And then 2021, it was $156 per hundredweight. In 2022, it's eased back a little bit to $91 per hundredweight for, for the year. Um, now, when we think about this price spread, uh, this is going to reflect, again, th those costs of doing business. So taking that animal from, from live to, to a box beef and those profits. Now, this data alone doesn't tell us if the, the increase since 2016 is because of higher costs or because of higher profits or both, right? So we don't know anything up until now, uh, just looking at, at that, that data. Now, Importantly, uh, some research that I've done, including another paper that I was a co-author of, showed that these wider price spreads um, after a fire in 2019 at a packing plant um, and in 2022 after COVID-induced packing plant disruptions. So those spreads really widened, right? And they were very notable um, in, in the media and, and, and shared um, throughout. Uh, that those are very much in line with perfect competition in the marketplace. Now that may seem a little paradoxical to some, right? Uh, but it's but it's easily explained when you think about the bottleneck in beef processing. So if you have reduction in, in capacity, uh, so if you have closure of, of packing plants or packing plants that are not able to operate uh, at full capacity, you have less demand for cattle, right? And with less demand for cattle, that means lower cattle prices, right? But at the same time, you had the same demand for beef and you had less beef being produced, right? So that increased box beef prices, increased retail prices. So that's the reason for those spreads that temporarily really widened, right? If you, if you gra graph those spreads. Now, I'm about to get to where our paper comes into this, this discussion here. Remember, I told you those spreads really date back to late 2015 and early 2016 when those spreads really started to widen, right? Um, and so you look at 2016 on, you look at 2021, 2022, and 2023, where they have persisted rather wide, suggests something other than these external market conditions and so shocks could be at work that's widened these spreads. All right, so this is where our, our study comes into play here. Uh, when we talk about you know cattle prices and beef prices and that spread between them, a lot of market observers you know suggest or think that these these wide spreads result from cattle supplies being out of step with slaughter capacity, right? So that can happen short term when we see some disruptions, or it can happen. Over, over a longer term because of cattle cycles, right? And so if you think about the current cattle cycle that began in 2014, uh, where, and, and that would be the, the last trough and we've expanded up to about 2019. Um, and now we've started to see those cattle inventories decline, right? So if you have uh, lower fed cattle supplies and you're bringing fewer fed cattle to market and the shackle space is the same, right? You have really high demand for, for cattle, that's going to increase cattle prices, right? And that's going to narrow the spread between box beef and, and fed cattle. Um, and that's where the industry is, is heading. If you think about, you know, if you look at USDA reports about cattle inventories, you know, those supplies are, are very much getting tighter. We are remaining at 
current capacity or even adding packing capacity. Um, and so that is gonna work to narrow that, that price thread. Now, conversely, when you have large cattle supplies, like we did, you know, 2000, after the expansion in 2014, when we got larger supplies, you know, starting in 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, um, that can start to depress cattle prices, right? Because now um, you're not, you don't have as much demand um, relative to the shackle space because you have growing uh, cattle, cattle inventories. Okay, so now when we think about this though, um, we've had two cattle cycles uh, really since concentration in the, in the meat packing industry has plateaued in 1995. You had cattle cycles that, that peaked in 1996 and 2007. Um, and remember, I told you those, those long run uh, price spreads were around that 30 to $34 per hundredweight, um, even when we had peaks in the, in the cattle, cattle inventory cycle. So again, this suggests maybe something has changed since the last peak in 2007 that's fueling these larger and persistent spreads between you know, upstream fed cattle prices and, and downstream uh, box beef prices. So I'll, I'll you know, so then to, to introduce our, our paper here, um, which was recently published in the American Journal of Agricultural Economics, uh, the, the title of the paper is Multi-Plant Coordination in the U.S. Beef Packing Industry. Uh, the authors are, are Christopher Pudence and myself. Uh, so Christopher was a, a PhD student uh, here at Iowa State that has, has just finished up um, with a PhD in economics here from Iowa State. Uh, he is the lead author on, on the paper. Um, I was Chris's advisor for um, his, his PhD work. Now this paper finds that most beef packers with multiple plants have, have really openly employed multi-plant coordination. Um, and so multi-plant coordination, we define that as firm level coordination of procurement, slaughter, and downstream marketing activities across plants owned by the same multi-plant beef packer with the goal of maximizing corporate level as opposed to plant level profits. Um, importantly, this is intra-firm coordination rather than coordination across separately owned firms. Uh, so this is completely legal. Uh, arguably, it's, it's a prudent business decision. So you could think about a lot of businesses. You know, one example may be like a farm dealer implement, right? If I own two farm implement uh, dealerships, I want to coordinate, you know, the inventory on those implements because um, it allows me to run that business more, you know, efficiently and, and effectively, right? You could argue uh, feedlots as well. You know, you manage for the profitability of the feedlot, not necessarily an individual pen in that feedlot, right? It may make sense to market those cattle sooner because of the opportunity cost of bringing in another pen of cattle that I was able to, to, to buy at a good price and able to, to possibly market it at a larger um, profit. So I think it's you know, important to understand that this multi-plant coordination um, is done across a lot of industries um, and, and, you know, to, the, and to the benefit of, of the, the businesses that are, that are performing this. Now, when we think about um, multi-plant coordination, you know, it's not if or even when the packers shifted to, to more fully utilizing multi-plant coordination. You know, their own statements from a lot of public press releases if, if that we, we highlight in the paper, you know, show the use of this practice uh, today. Um, also importantly, um, in the study, you know, we reference a lot of academic literature that shows that, you know, prior to 2005, 2006, you know, we didn't, 
the industry, pack, beef packing in particular here, really wasn't using uh, multi-plant coordination um, to a meaningful full degree. And so, you know, we asked the question now, you know, what are the implications of, of using this? And, you know, could it explain these persistently wide price spreads? Um, and when we think about this, uh, there's potentially two effects of multi-plant coordination. So the first one can actually narrow the spread between fed cattle prices and beef prices. Uh, the other effect could actually widen the spread. So in the paper, we discuss and, and model both of these, these effects. So I'll first talk about the, the possibility of multi-plant coordination narrowing the spread. So here, multi-plant coordination, it's gonna generate a lot of cost efficiencies that could be passed on to producers in the form of paying higher prices. So for example, if I'm able to um, make sure my plants operate at a, a sweet spot as far as capacity utilization, so there's not, I'm not operating um, over capacity where I'm having to pay a lot of overtime, I'm having to do a lot of uh, larger slaughter on Saturdays, um, as opposed, and I'm not operating under capacity where there's a lot of excess capacity that's really costly, that's going to cause uh, save me a lot of efficiencies. Also, when you think about multi-plant coordination, this allows packers to streamline procurement staff. So instead of buying for a particular plant, um, you know, they're buying for a particular region. This could trade, um, trim some labor costs as it thinks about procurement. And then it could reduce uh, costs of associated with marketing beef into consumer markets. And so um, this would be how you would see the, the multi-plant coordination narrowing that spread between cattle prices and beef prices. And our models show that the packers pass all of these cost savings on to cattle producers in the, in the form of higher prices. Now, the second effect um, has to do with packing companies reducing competition among the plants that they own. And so you can think about this as, as you have uh, 20 somewhat independent packing companies uh, that, are, that are owned, some of them are owned by the same firm, but they're all bidding against each other when you think about the, the, the available cattle supplies, right? And so if you're consolidating in, into four, you're going to reduce the competition. And this is all else equal, going to lower prices being paid for fed cattle. Now, what we show is if, if the effects of this reduced competition outweigh the cost efficiencies of multi-plant coordination, then multi-plant coordination provides an explanation for wider spreads between beef prices and, and cattle prices. Okay, so I, I do have a question about your theory about the um, narrowing margins being able to, uh, the the when the when the margins can narrow packers are um returning those cost of efficiencies back to producers how are you able to confirm that as far so so when you think about um you know efficiencies so um when you think about available cattle right you're you're in a competitive environment environment bidding for cattle, right? And so the highest prices um, being paid are able to secure the, those cattle, right? So if you're able to pay higher prices, you're able to, to secure more cattle or the cattle that, that you want, right? And so economic theory would suggest that, you know, you're able to, um, you know, 
bid higher prices for those cattle and, and get those cattle to, again, remember, profit from the purchase of those cattle processing um, into, into beef. Now, you know, when we think about, you know, there, there's more to think about here um, when, when you think about multi-plant coordination, right? So uh, multi-plant coordination, we show that um, a multi-plant coordinator will permanently shut down a plant before the same plant run as a profit, separate profit center will shut down, right? And that's important because when we think about here historically, we've seen six major fed cattle slaughter plant shutdowns. Uh, were executed between 2005 and, and 2015, right? And the one here in Iowa was was the, the plant in Denison, Iowa, right? And so, um, you know, that was, you know, I, I started here in 2012. So that was, uh, again, a, a big uh, announcement and, and potential impact on Iowa cattle producers. Um, now, when we think about you know, excess shackle space is expensive. So, you know, these plant shutdowns were again, very prudent at the time decisions because you had this excess capacity. But that said, you know, that you've trimmed this capacity, um, that's contributed to the situation we have now, right? Where really, you know, we, we've operated at a, at a system where we've dealt with some capacity issues. We've, we're, we're at um, or near capacity, right? And that that's caused some issues, you know, COVID, the COVID disruptions would what be one example of that. Um, now, when you think about uh, the, the shutdowns, you know, our study shows that th that this is part of that multi-plant coordination and this is widened that spread between, again, beef prices and, and fed cattle prices. Um, the other part, you know, I'll, I'll kind of end with this of, of summarizing kind of our, our main results of the study is that, you know, we demonstrate that adding a strategically located placking plant owned by an entrant firm, so it's not one of a, a current multi-plant firm, this can nar potentially narrow the price spread. So, you know, as we talk about initiatives to add independently owned packing plants, um, this could potentially narrow that spread between box beef prices and, and fed cattle prices. Um, now, you know, importantly, uh, there's a lot of details here. So strategically located, you know, means that likely it's where a plant that was shut down once uh, was located or close to where that plant was located. Um, also, you know, it's very important to understand uh, that there is economies of size when you think about packing capacity, right? So the, 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 the entrant packers would have to be able to compete from a cost standpoint or a value standpoint, um, you know, without subsidies to, to, to be competitive in this market, right? So um, again, I think, you know, this is, um, shows the impacts that are possible. Now, you know, as we think about um, going forward, you know, some of it's to be determined, right? As we, as we watch the market play out. Um, and then as well as, uh, you know, we can talk about this, you know, future work would look at more of the data. And I think, you know, Karina, that gets back to your point of how do we know uh, that that packers pass those prices, those uh, cost savings onto producers in the form of higher prices, right? In our model, we show that, right? Um, and there's economic theory um, and, you know, literature that we can show uh, to show that, but what we would need the data then to help confirm that, um, especially, you know, when we look at the current market. So tell us about the peer review process and what that should mean to our audience. 
Great question. Uh, so you can think of the peer review uh, as, as the gold standard, right? Uh, so the peer review system exists to really help uphold the quality and validity of academic work and the journals that that publish it, right? So, uh, you know, I referenced uh, the, the article, Multiplant Coordination in the U.S. Beef Packing Industry was published in the American Journal of Agricultural Economics. That's notable. Uh, that is our leading journal in agriculture and applied economics. Um, and so you can think about, you know, that as really uh, the, 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 you know, where you want to target this academic work, right? Um, acceptance rates there are roughly 10%, right? So, wow. um, you know, it's, it's, it's rather low. Now, when you think about the peer review process, um, it's really the only widely accepted method for research validation. Um, and it's been used for hundreds of years, right? And it's not just in economics or agriculture economics, it's across really all disciplines, right? Uh, and that process starts once you've submitted a paper to a journal, right? Um, and, you know, I, I always uh, warn people, you know, academia, we move much more slowly than uh, industry does, right? And so, um, you know, when you think about, you know, we, we submitted, uh, you know, this paper and it takes over a year before it's accepted and, and published, right? So uh, once you submit the paper, you know, an editor is going to assess the paper for scope, originality, and merit, um, and they may desk reject the paper, right? Um, but fortunately, you know, our paper uh, made it through that process. Um, and then the, the editor is going to invite uh, individuals to be uh, reviewers of that, independent reviewers of that, that research. And usually they're going to secure two. It, it could be, could be more um, reviewers of that. And those potential reviewers are going to be experts in the field, right? Um, and so they're going to be ones that have either published in this area before or have a lot of knowledge in the area and really can, again, um, validate, you know, what, what the research is, is showing. Um, and so if those once those reviewers accept, uh, then the paper is going to go out for review. And, you know, the, here the, the um, reviewers are, are going to likely read the paper multiple times. So the first time they're just going to read it to, um, you know, see if there's any major problems and there's any reason to really reject the paper without any further work. Um, you know, if they think it's kind of past that hurdle, uh, then they're going to read the paper several more times and, and really build a deep detailed point-by-point -point review of the paper um, that can give them a reason to suggest an acceptance or a revise or resubmit or, or a rejection of, of the paper, um, right? And, and, you know, realizing that I'm both an author in the case we're talking about here, but I've been a reviewer on a lot of papers as well. So, um, you know, this is a, a big service responsibility of uh, people in the profession, right? Because we're both producing academic work, but we're also reviewing, reviewing that academic work. Now, when, when that, uh, all those reviews have been done by external reviewers, the editor is going to take all them and the editor is going to make a decision kind of based on those uh, reviewers. Now, sometimes a reviewer, you know, there may be a, a disagreeing opinion. And so then maybe even a third review or an associate editor is going to come in and kind of be the tiebreaker. Now, a lot of times, you know, papers are either rejected or there's a re revise and resubmit. Um, and that's the case of our paper is it, it got a revise and resubmit uh, with a laundry list of, of, of comments, you know, questions, suggestions that, that could be made. And so, um, you know, there's, there's the case where, you know, we work through all of those revisions, uh, revise the paper, provided point by point, um, 
you know, revisions to the reviewers so they could understand what we did. And then we submitted that uh, revised paper and those um, uh, revision comments back to the editor and the reviewers. Uh, it actually went through a, a little bit more of a revision because um, that can be a, a multi-step process before it was finally um, accepted. And so, you know, once it's accepted, it goes through the whole publication process and then, you know, eventually appears online and then eventually um, in a um, an issue of, of an academic journal. So what were some of the most notable revisions that you were asked to make from that first um, submission to getting it submitted in the journal? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think when you think about, you know, some of the revisions, um, a lot of it, you know, is is just clarification, right? Because I, I can think about this as, you know, when, when you're a researcher working on a topic, um, you kind of uh, you know, really, you maybe understand a lot of the terminology or a lot of the things that are, are you maybe take for granted a little bit. So there's a lot of revisions uh, that relate to, you know, just helping readers that may be um, experts, maybe, but not exactly in that field, understand your research, right? Because that's what research is about. It's kind of building uh, that, that line of research. So it's hopefully not sound, now someone can take our results and our paper and extend that, right? Or use that in, in their application. Uh, you know, as it relates to, you know, I think this study, probably the biggest um, revision we had was, you know, including the different ways that cattle are sold, right? So, um, you know, we kind of, in our first uh uh, issue of or first um, submission of the paper, you know, we kind of assumed that that we had a, a weighted average price. So it was kind of a you could think about it as 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 the weighted average price. But we don't know. But we know when we sell cattle, some cattle are sold negotiated, some cattle are sold formula, some cattle are sold forward contract, and some cattle are sold negotiated grit. And so a reviewer pointed out that you know you need to make sure that this is truly representative or more reflective of, you know, how those cattle are, are, are bought and sold, um, you know, in, in the marketplace. And so, you know, I think, again, that's a way to, to help validate the research, right? Because it's really kind of a robustness check. Uh, you know, do we, if I have the same findings, and we did, if we change, you know, in the way in which these cattle are bought and sold, because there's, there's some nuances to all of, you know, the, the ways that we see price discovery, right? And so, um, you know, I think that was an important um, contribution to the study. You know, we always thank reviewers for that, because that is, you know, a good part of this peer review system is, you know, improving a paper, and it very much did that through this process. Well, some of the media that covered this this study said that it should be considered by Congress as they wrestle with the task of creating fair cattle markets. How would you suggest Congress use this body of work to attempt cattle market reforms? So I, I'm going to take a bit of a step back here uh, to, to, I think, set this up, because I think, again, it to help uh, set up the environment maybe helps show where it really fits into to a lot of uh, the current discussion as we think about um, price discovery and transparency in the marketplace. Uh, so history has shown that markets work well, right? Uh, they, they really generate appropriate price signals. They result in least cost production innovation, but markets don't always work perfectly, right? So, and, and I'll give you a great example. Uh, so an example that fits perfectly is we've, we've seen imbalances in market power between buyers and sellers can impact prices, right? If you think back to the 1990s, there was a lot of concerns about among industry and Congress over packer concentration as meat companies were consolidating and expanding, market structures were changing, right? Now, this came to a head in 
December 1998. Uh, when you think about the, the hog market, right? Negotiated hog prices collapsed to single digits. Formula contract prices did not decline nearly as much. So that had people, for good reasons, asking why, right? Why are we, why are we seeing pr producers receive different prices for effectively the same commodity? Now that commodity is being discovered in, in different ways. So you think about industry participants, um, and this goes from producers to stakeholders to government, really believe that a free flow of complete market information could reduce these adverse price impacts of market power imbalances, right? So they urged Congress to act, Congress did, um, and what came out of that is Livestock Mandatory Reporting Act of 1999, right? And so that helped us establish a program uh, that provides information regarding the marketing of, of cattle, other commodities like swine, lamb, and then the the the, the beef products or the, the wholesale products that produce that are coming from those products, right? It improves our price and supply forecast or price and reporting services. That that's the data we all use, right? Um, it helps encourage it, uh, competition in the marketplace because if we know what prices are, right, that evens the, the playing field. Um, across both buyers and sellers. Uh, and what we've gotten out of this is 27 daily, 28 weekly, 18 monthly, and six annual cattle reports. Um, now, remember, I told you, you know, markets work, but maybe they don't work perfectly, right? So since the establishment of LMR, USDA has worked with industry to refine the overall effectiveness of this program, right? And I'll give you one, one example or one case here is, the formula category that, that USDA reports is a catch-all category, right? It includes fed cattle purchases not categorized as negotiated forward contract or negotiated grit. And it represents a, a, a lot of fed cattle um, quality, different specifications. And when you look at a price report for formula prices, uh, they're really wide, right? So the price range, you're, you're seeing really wide price range. And again, you're having people ask why, right? If I'm if I'm a producer that's getting a price at the lower end versus I know some producers are getting priced at the high, higher end, I want to know why, right? Um, and those are, are, you know, important questions to ask. So um, USDA, you know, responding to those requests, started publishing a, a formula base price cattle report. Um, that provides some additional prices into these formula cattle trades. They have a price distribution report. Uh, but again, it's be, and sometimes all the information you know you would like in those reports are not available. And one main reason is confidentiality, right? And so there is some confidentiality restrictions that prevent releasing all of the information that's coming into USDA. Now, most recently, uh, USDA, as part of the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2022, Two, created the cattle contracts library pilot program, right? So again, we're, we're adding to this market transparency um, to hopefully help improve price discovery um, and, and enhance these price signals to, 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 to producers and, and um, industry, industry players here. Now, when we think about, um, so I'm, I'm moving towards your question, and sometimes it takes me a little bit to get there. You know, importantly, cattle producers should and will be the ones that, that are deciding what policies to pursue um, and how that will affect how the industry functions, right? So importantly, 
This study, nor if you look at any of my existing research, does not say what policies should or should not be promoted. I think that's for the, the place of industry participants, right? Because um, they, they're the ones being affected by these, these policies. Now, I view my job in, in academia is to make sure everyone involved understands the implications and consequences, some of those intended, unintended, of alternative policies being considered, right? Um, and sometimes this research can be popular or unpopular, right? Um, and but but I think that's the role of research, and I think that's where if we think about this multi-plant coordination study fits in. So we know that multi-plant coordination. Um, does not alone explain these these wide price spreads, right? Um, the cattle cycle is alive and well, right? There's other issues. There is, uh, you know, when we think about concentration, when we think about the ways uh, fed cattle are being um, transacted, when you think about geography and transportation costs, all of those factors are impacting prices for cattle and beef, right? But up until now, you know, multi-plant coordination was not considered as one of those very salient features of the fed cattle market. Um, and so I think, you know, going forward, uh, we need to take multi-plant coordination into consideration when we think about the structure, conduct, and performance of the beef packing industry. Uh, you know, when we think about multi-plant coordination, that makes the level of concentration in the beef packing industry a less reliable measure of market competitiveness um, than it used to be, right? Because I already showed with you that second impact of multi-plant coordination is reduced competition, right? So even if we don't see concentration levels change as we typically measure them, and you have more multi-plant coordination, that's going to reduce the competition in 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 that sense. Um, and so I think when you think about studies that have looked at concentration market power, um, they need to consider this multi-plant coordination. So any research going forward should, should take that into consideration. The other part is as we, as we think about these proposed policies that possibly would mandate certain levels of negotiated trade in fed cattle, um, you know, there's been various policies, again, um, you know, suggested by, by, by various groups um, involved in there. Um, again, you know, as an academic, I think it's our job to, to respond to, you know, what, could happen with some of those policies as it relates to multi-plant coordination. This is very important because this would need to be taken into consideration because multi-plant firms would have increased flexibility in the implementation of such a policy, right? Because if that policy was regulated at the national versus regional versus firm versus plant level, that has different implications of how a multi-plant packer versus a packer with a, a single plant um, may operate in, in that scenario. So, you know, I think a big part of this research is showing uh, the, the possible impacts and why we need to take this business practice into consideration. So the cattle market, as we all know, is always evolving. So where does that leave this study? Is there more to come on this subject or um, what's your upcoming plans? Sure. So I, I think now having established that there is this trade-off between multi-plant coordination efficiencies and reduced 
competition from multi-plant coronation, you know, to your point, we don't know uh, the, the impact, right? We haven't quantified if that impact is larger from the efficiencies, which would narrow the spread, or if it's larger from the reduced competition, which would widen the spread. You know, and if, when we look at those collectively. So I think when you think about uh, the, the next step in this research, uh, which we, we've, we've started down, is to quantify the impacts of that on beef price spread. So um, some of the, the the ways to do this as well, looking at a situation where you know we've established that um, multi-plant coordination as it relates to um, closing a plant, um, that can widen the price spread. So understanding, again, that's gonna cost some efficiencies, which would narrow it, but understanding how, how it may widen it as well, and then the impact. So, you know, we, as I mentioned, we've had several packing plant closures that you could really dial in on that impact of that closure and multi-plant coordination of how that would impact the beef price spread. Uh, that's not a trivial task, right? Um, because you really need to control for um, all the other factors in the marketplace, right? Where we are at in the cattle cycle, um, you know, being one of those, those factors, certainly to understand how those cattle are being bought and sold. You know, that's different in different places like Iowa versus other places uh, of the US. And so, you know, I think some of the challenge there is is data availability too. So a lot of the earlier studies that have uh, discussed or hinted at multi-plant coordination, you know, they had access to, uh, you know, really firm level, very proprietary data, um, but did some studies, uh, you know, on the marketplace to help understand. A lot of those studies were about concentration uh, in meat packing, but there was some evidence, you know, to show that there wasn't much multi-plant coordination, you know, up until 2005 or, or so. Um, so I think, you know, if you had really that firm level data, it's going to be the most informative. Uh, but if we're going to aggregate up some of that data, which may be the only way to get available data, you know, I think it would really be important to, to look at the, the, the regional impacts versus, you know, a national impact. Because anytime you really aggregate up to a national level, you might wash away many of the effects because you're going to have a lot of countervailing um, impacts. But if you, I think if you're able to really dial into how it impacts a particular market, I think that'll be able to really distill some of, some of that important information. The other thing, uh, and we highlight in this in the study, is that, you know, we've talked so far about farm to wholesale prices. So the difference between fed cattle prices and beef prices, but the spread between beef prices and retail prices have also widened notably over time. So again, those spreads are going to account for costs and profits, right? Of getting that wholesale beef up to retail beef. Now, I think, you know, further research could really dive into multi-plant coordination at that segment of the industry. Um, and that's going to help us get a more complete picture of the impacts of multi-plant coordination on the entire beef supply chain. You know, we focused here on the farm to wholesale, but again, there's that other segment uh, when you look at wholesale to retail, that would be very informative as well. Excellent. So as we kind of start to wrap up, anything else you want to add that we didn't discuss or any questions you can think of, Karina? Hey, Lee, you have anything else? No, I think you, you guys let me run, so I was able to <laughs> kind of fill it in, I think. Good deal. Okay, well, we appreciate you joining us today and for sharing with our listeners just about all your hard work.
Um, and we have one last question for you that we always wrap up okay. with. What is your favorite cut of beef and how do you like it prepared? <laughs> well, the only way to cook beef is is medium rare, right? Or, and so uh, <laughs> that, that's the easy question. Um, you know, it would have to, to, I think, you know, reminiscent growing up, it was, you know, Saturdays uh, having T-bones on, on the grill, you know, after a hard day of work. So it's kind of hard to to deviate maybe from that when you, when you think about the, the, the perfect cut of, of beef for you, realizing, you know, there's a lot of great cuts of beef out there, but uh, that would have to be mine. Thank you, Lee, for joining us today. We look forward to following your work and your projects. We need meaningful market reform. So to read more about the Iowa State research, go to our show notes where you can find the full text of the study, Multi-Plant Coordination in the U.S. Beef Packing Industry. Thanks for tuning in today. Be sure to follow along at RCAPUSA on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. RCAPUSA is set apart from all other national cattle associations because we rely solely on membership dues and donations to carry out our mission to ensure the continued profitability and independence of United States cattle producers. We exist only because of support from our members. We ask you to help support RCAPUSA. First year new membership dues are $50 and after that all renewals are $100 each year. To become a member or to donate call 406-252 2516 or go to r-calfusa.com.